Thank you, Wally. I appreciate that. Take your Bibles, please, and turn to 1 Peter chapter number 5 this evening. 1 Peter chapter number 5, we're going to continue on in our study on the life of Peter. The last number of times that I've spoken, we've been talking about the path of Peter, and um, so that's what we'll continue on this evening. Peter is finishing up in 1 Peter chapter number 5, a portion of his first epistle, with some just really good practical advice for both the shepherds of the church as well as the sheep of the church. And that's what we started talking about last time that I spoke on a Sunday morning. Um, and so when he goes through 1 Peter chapter number 5, he's just got some great advice no matter where you're at in life. No matter if you're a church member or a church leader, he has advice for you in 1 Peter chapter number 5. Um, this is practical advice that he himself followed because it was not that long ago in Peter's life that he himself failed to follow the advice that he is now giving to us. It was just a few short decades earlier in the life of Peter that the Son of God had personally warned Peter that Satan desired to have Peter and the other apostles. But as the leader of the apostles, Jesus himself had prayed for per Peter personally. And on behalf of Peter, when Jesus prayed for Peter, that meant God prayed to God. And so God prayed to God that Peter might be helped and uh, God's prayers reached God's throne room. And so what happened was the only thing that needed to happen in Peter's life to succeed when Jesus warned him that he was potentially going to fall was that, G that Peter needed to do what Jesus had warned him to do, which in the Garden of Gethsemane was to watch and pray. And so Jesus took Peter, James, and John a little further in the Garden of Gethsemane and commanded them to watch and pray. And Jesus had already taken Peter's situation to God the Father. And so Jesus had done for Peter what Jesus could do. Now it was Peter's job to do what only Peter could do, which was to watch and pray. And Peter and the other men there, they were physically and mentally and emotionally exhausted. They led incre incredibly busy lives in their service for the Lord. And they fell asleep. They didn't mean to fall asleep. They just did. They weren't as uh, diligent in watching and praying as they should have been, and they fell asleep. Them falling asleep was not in defiance to God. It was just simply their flesh getting the best of them. And because Peter was not on guard like he should have been, his character broke down. And because his character broke down, Peter ended up going down the path of denial that he never imagined that he would possibly do. Peter ends up denying the Lord, and the denial of Peter becomes one of the very few things that are recorded in all four gospel records. And it is likely from that lowest point in Peter's life that he gives this advice in 1 Peter chapter 5. It is likely from the recesses of his memory that he is jotting down some advice for you and me that he wants to give to us that still is timeless to us today. By the way, wouldn't it be great if you could um, just speak to a loved one that had passed off the scene that was just incredibly wise to you? It'd be great to talk to a parent, a grandparent, somebody that was just very instrumental in your life. Understand what you're getting with Peter. You're getting that with Peter. You're getting a loved one, an apostle that wrote down timeless truths and timeless words for you and me today. 
And as much as we would like to go back to a parent that has passed on, a grandparent that has passed on, some loved one, and have them impart some wisdom to us, I don't mean to be crass, but we have much better than that. We have an apostle that wrote down for us things that we need today, even to this very day. 2,000 years later, the advice that he gives us is just as timeless today as it was back then. And so that's what we get with Peter. We get some advice that he himself tried to hold up to, that he himself failed at doing, and then he himself rebounded from, and he gives us this, this advice. And so 1 Peter chapter number 5, verses 1 through 4, Peter is addressing the shepherds of the church. And it's in chapter 5, verse 5, that he turns to the sheep of the church. We'll pick up in verse 5. He says, Likewise, ye younger, submit yourselves unto the elder. Yea, all of you be subject one to another, and be clothed with humility. For God resisteth the proud, and giveth grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time. Casting all your care upon him, for he careth for you. And that's where we stopped last time. We talked about the two things that Peter said to do. Uh, the first thing was to humble yourself, and that's found in verse 6. The sec second thing was to cast yourself, that is found in verse 7. He addresses submission. He addresses humility. Uh, that's found in verse 5 because what we see is that submission is the outward evidence of your inward humility. You see, in your life, if there is no submission, then there's actually no humility. That's what it says in verse 5. Submission is an outgrowth of humility. And so Peter tells us, humble yourself in verse 6. He tells us to cast yourself in verse 7. And so once you've humbled yourself before the Lord, once you've cast yourself upon the Lord, you're now ready for Peter's next piece of advice. Listen, I think all of us would agree that Peter had some struggles from time to time in his life, no different than you and me, but Peter overcame them. Peter succeeded and got victory over them. And so we should listen to the advice that he has to say. If you've humbled yourself, if you've cast yourself, according to verses six and seven, let's look at his next bit of advice found in verse eight. The Bible says in verse number eight, be sober, be vigilant. Because your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion, walketh about seeking whom he may devour. Notice the two things that he tells us that we need to take heed to in verses 6 and 7. The two things of humbling ourselves and casting ourselves, those are things that we do for the Lord. And then there are two things that we do uh, to be prepared for Satan in verse 8, to be sober and to be vigilant. So he addresses two things that we should deal with with our advocate, with the, which is Jesus. And then he turns to two things that we need to deal with, which is for our adversary, which is Satan. Notice the two things that he says in verse 8. Be sober, be vigilant. Why? Because your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion, walketh about seeking whom he may devour. You see, we think about the word sober, and we think about it in the context of just simply being opposite of drunkenness. And we understand that because we have police officers that administer field sobriety tests. When the police officer pulls you over, you know, they can uh, uh, administer a field sobriety test if they think that you're, you're drunk or you've been drinking. And, and that's what we think of when we think about the word sober. And sober most certainly includes the absence of liquor. But I want you to understand something. The Bible word for sober is much more than the absence of liquor. The first thing to remember is in context, Peter in chapter five, he's addressing spiritual issues. Submission is a spiritual issue. 
Humility is a spiritual issue. Casting your care upon the Lord is a spiritual issue. So it wouldn't make sense for Peter to all of a sudden change gears from addressing specifically spiritual things to address a specifically physical thing. So when Peter tells us to be sober, yes, it includes the physical, but it is actually much more than just physical sobriety. It is physical sobriety, but it is also spiritual sobriety. It is emotional sobriety. You see, to be sober means you're regularly temperate. That's another Bible word. So to be sober means you're regularly under control. That's what it means to be temperate. You see, if you lose your temper, what you have effectively done is you have lost your temperance. Temper and temperance, it's the same concept. We actually use that same concept today when we talk about the temperature of a room. The temperature of a room is to be controlled. It's not supposed to be too hot. It's not supposed to be too cold. And so to be sober means that from an emotional, a physical, or a spiritual perspective, you're not to be too hot and you're not to be too cold. You're supposed to be under control. To be sober means you're consistently the same emotional temperature. You are temperate. That's what it means to be sober. Go back, keep your hand here. Go back in your Bible to Galatians chapter number five. Galatians chapter number five. We'll be back to first Peter. Notice in Galatians chapter number five, Paul tells us that one of the works of the flesh is drunkenness, which from a physical perspective is the opposite of sobriety. But again, as we'll get to in just a moment, sobriety is much more than that. Notice what the Bible says in Galatians chapter five, verse 16. This I say then, walk in the spirit and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Now notice he doesn't say that you won't have the lust of the flesh. You'll always have the lust of the flesh. But if you walk in the spirit, you won't fulfill the lust of the flesh. And then in verse 17, he says the flesh lusts against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. In verse 18, he says, if you're led of the spirit, you're not under the law. And then in verses 19, 20, and 21, he talks about the works of the flesh. Notice what he says in verse 19. The works of the, now the works of the flesh are manifest, which are these, adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, variance, emulations, wrath, strife, seditions, heresies, envyings, murders, watch this, drunkenness, revelings, and such like of the which I tell you before, as I have told you in time past, that ye which that they which do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. And so what we see here is that drunkenness, the opposite of sobriety, drunkenness is a work of the flesh. This is, that means that fleshly people participate in drunkenness. Fleshly people participate in these sins here in verses 19, 20, and 21. Now, but go over to Ephesians chapter 5 to find out what drunkenness even means. Again, when you look at a word in the Bible, use the Bible to define what that word means. Ephesians chapter 5 defines for us what drunkenness really is. It's a very simple definition of drunkenness. It includes being drunk with alcohol, but it's much more than that. Ephesians chapter number 5, verse 18. And be not drunk with wine, here it is, wherein is, what's that word? Excess. That is the Bible definition for drunkenness. It's excess. Be not drunk with wine wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. He is, Paul is saying, don't be filled with wine, be filled with the Spirit. 
don't be drunk with wine, be drunk with the Spirit. And I, I don't say drunk with the Spirit like the, the charismatics that run around like crazy. It's not what I'm talking about, the Bible way that you're supposed to be drunk with the Spirit. You're supposed to be filled with the Spirit. In fact, he, the Bible here in verse 18 defines the word drunk both with excess and with filled. It, 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 the word drunk is connected to both of those words. So drunkenness, according to verse 18, is excess. Now, go back to 1 Peter chapter 5. We're actually going to be in 1 Peter chapter 4, but if you had your hand there, you should be right there. 1 Peter chapter 4. So, church, real quick, drunkenness is what? What's the word? Excess. Drunkenness is excess. Notice what the Bible says in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse number 3. 1 Peter 4, 3. For the time past of our life may suffice us to have wrought the will of the Gentiles. When we walked in lasciviousness, lusts, here it is, excess of wine. Drunkenness means excess. What Peter is saying here is people got drunk. He uses the word excess in, in replacement of the word drunk. It means the same exact thing. Drunkenness is excess. Here in verse three, it's very specifically the type of drunkenness that has to do with wine. It has to do with liquor. But notice he doesn't stop there. Verse four, wherein they think it's strange that ye run not with them to the same, watch this phrase, excess of riot. Notice that phrase. So you can be drunken with wine, according to verse 3, and in verse 4, you can be drunken with riot. The, to be drunken with riot, to have excess of riot, means you, you live a, a, a tumultuous life. You're constantly fighting. You're constantly at odds with something uh, or someone. You are in excess of riot. You are drunken with riot, which means biblically, please hear me, you can be drunk with many different things in life. It is not just liquor. Now, Ephesians 5 tells us not to be drunk with wine. You're supposed to be sober. Uh, Lamentations chapter 3 tells us you can be drunken with bitterness. And if you're drunken with wine, that means you're not sober. So too, if you're drunken with bitterness, that means you're not sober. Revelation chapter 17 tells us that the great whore was drunken with the blood of the saints and the blood of the martyrs. That means that this, this mystery religion was drunken with the lives of these good saved people. Okay, so you can be drunken with all types of things. Revelation 18 implies that you could be drunken with wrath. And so you can be drunken, you can be driven to excess with a lot of different things in your life. And so what God does is he doesn't go down this long list of things that he doesn't want you to be drunk with. Instead, what he does is he gives you a simple command, be sober. That's what he does. And so we can be drunk with all types of things. There's some actually some interesting general Bible thoughts regarding drunkenness. Ecclesiastes chapter 10 contrasts drunkenness with strength. And what that implies is that spiritually, and emotionally strong people don't get drunk because uh, drunkenness and strength are at two different ends of the spectrum, which means spiritually and emotionally weak people get drunk. Romans 13 tells us that we should walk honestly, not in drunkenness. And here, drunkenness is contrasted with honesty, which means drunkenness is connected to lying. Jeremiah 15 says that drunkenness is connected with sleeping men. And so drunks tend to sleep more than they should. Proverbs 31 connects strong drink to death and depression, poverty, and misery. This is all things that, that are connected to either to drunkenness with liquor or to strong drink in some way, shape, or form, which means to be sober means you are not 
drunken, you have excess of nothing that would impair your thinking. So sobriety is actually an exceptionally high bar that Christ tells us to reach for. It is an exceptionally high command. When Christ tells us to be sober, he is telling us, don't be in excess of anything that would impair your thinking, your your, your view on things, your outlook on life. Be not impaired with anything. So a couple of areas that we can be uh, drunken with. We can be overpowered or intoxicated with. How about this? You can be overpowered or intoxicated by outward influences. For instance, you can be, uh, you can be drunken with things like alcohol and marijuana. Now, some people wrongly think that because marijuana grows from the ground, it must be natural and okay to use. That couldn't be more false. Understand something. One of the first things after the fall of mankind to be cursed was the ground. The first thing to be cursed was Satan. The second thing to be cursed was the ground. Adam and Eve were never cursed. Adam and Eve were punished. They were never cursed. Cain was cursed. So understand something. Satan, the ground, and Cain, they were all cursed. Adam and Eve were not, which means you can't assume that just because something grows naturally, that it's from God. All that person is doing is exposing their biblical ignorance their pride, and their desire to fulfill their own flesh. That's what they really want to do. They're looking for a way that they can position God as justifying what they really want to do. That's all that is. And so just because it grows from the ground, that is a ridiculously immature position to take as as to why to justify the smoking of pot. There's actually a drug in the American Indian culture called peyote. It is a drug that the American Indians use in their religion, their religious ceremonies. By the way, American Indian religions are satanic. You look it up, they're demonic. They conjure up spirits from the dead. They conjure up evil spirits. It is a demonic religion. You might not like that. That is true. American Indians use peyote in accordance with their religious ceremonies. It is actually illegal in the United States of America to use peyote, unless you're an American Indian, on an Indian reservation. So that grows from the ground just like marijuana does. Are we supposed to assume that peyote, which is a hallucinogenic drug, it it literally takes you into the spirit realm of evil and devils. Are we to say that because it, it is a cactus that grows from the ground, that that somehow is natural and God approved? No, not at all whether it's marijuana, whether it's peyote. Listen, the ground is cursed, people, and you should not be dabbling in things that cause you to lose your sobriety. And so you should not be overpowered. You should not be intoxicated by any outward influences like drugs or alcohol. You should also be sober and not be overpowered or intoxicated by inward influences like anger, greed, or lust. I won't spend much of the time on this because I think we all have a good idea in our heart that anger, lust, and greed are basically wrong. What we probably don't have a good idea of is when we are drunk with anger, lust, and greed. Listen, when Moses killed the Egyptian, he was drunken with anger. And murder is simply the end of the road 
of hate. That's all it is. And if you went to Moses, went the day that he killed the Egyptian, the day, if you went to him and said, hey, brother Moses, are you in your right mind? He'd have said, absolutely. He had no clue or concept that he himself was drunken with anger in that moment. If you go to David, the day that he takes Bathsheba in adultery, he was drunken with lust. And adultery is simply the end of the road of lust. It's why it's based, that's why Jesus equates adultery with lust in the New Testament. One is the beginning of the road, the other is the end of the road. Lust, unbridled, ends in adultery. And if you went to David and said, hey, David, are you in your right mind? He'd have said, absolutely. Did not recognize that he was drunken with lust. If you went to Achan, who took the accursed thing in Joshua's day, he stole something. He was drunken with greed. And stealing is simply the end of the road of greed. It's the same road. Greed gets you on the road and, and it ends in theft. It ends in stealing. And all three of these men, if you went to them at the moment that they were participating in this drunkenness from their inward influences, this was not drugs or alcohol. These were things from, the, from their own wicked heart. If you went to them on their inward influences that had caused them to be drunken and asked them, are you in your right mind? All three of them would have said yes, but they weren't. They were drunken by inward influences. And so sobriety, it doesn't just have to do with outward influences. It doesn't have to do with inward influences. It also has to do with spiritual influences. Listen, spiritual influences cause you to not be sober. You talk to anybody that's come out of Mormonism. There is a black veil across your mind and heart when you are engulfed in that false religion, that cult of Mormonism, Jehovah's Witnesses, Islam. These are all cults that deny God. They deny Christ. They deny hell. They deny all types of biblical doctrines. These are cults. And that causes you to be drunken spiritually. You're not seeing right. You try to, to, to uh, not really argue, but, 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 but convince a Mormon, convince a Jehovah's Witness of the fact that they're wrong biblically. They don't want to hear it. Why? Because they're drunken spiritually. They do not see things clearly. It's not just cults, it's false religions. Listen, there's all types of things wrong with the Methodist church, Episcopalian church. Uh, they're baby baptizers. Our Baptist forefathers literally died to dig their heels in and say, I will not baptize infants. Listen, Protestants do that all the time. That's a false religion. False doctrines like the church of Christ. They, think about this. The church of Christ literally believes you have to get wet to get to heaven. That's what they believe. You got to get wet in order to get to heaven. That is no different than Cain saying, well, my fruit will get me to heaven. Cain says my fruit will get me to heaven. The church of Christ says you have to be wet to get to heaven. They're both works of their hands. They're both religious works. And that causes you to be uh, intoxicated spiritually. You're not seeing correctly, but it doesn't have to be religious things. Understand, even though this is, this next thing is, is a type of religion, Listen, yoga causes you to be drunken spiritually. You are not seeing clearly when you participate in yoga. Does anybody actually know what the word yoga even means? It means to yoke with the spirit. You're literally, as a Christian, if you understand the Bible and you know what it means to not be unequally yoked, the word yoga means yoke. You are yoking yourself with the earth. You are yoking yourself with a supreme spirit of, of the Hindu religion, which is a devil. They worship hundreds of millions of devils 
does the Hindu religion, and you are yoking yourself to one of their spirits. You cannot separate yoga from the Hindu religion any more than you can separate Jesus Christ from, from this book. They are inseparable. And you can't anymore put a Bible verse on a Ouija board and call that Christian than you can make yoga anything other than what it is, a demonic, ritualistic exercise of the Hindu religion. That's what it is. Yoga poses are literally new age religious poses that use your body as an antenna to channel evil spirits. Look this stuff up. I'm not making this stuff up. There's, there's kundalini yoga, which literally channels a serpent spirit in you that gives you a kundalini awakening. People, you can go to fair, places in Fairfield, Ohio and practice this. It is demonic and it is causing people not to be sober. Peter's command is to be sober and to be vigilant. And I'm simply saying that our sobriety is far more than just drunkenness. Our sobriety needs to be sober from outward influences, inward influences, and spiritual influences. Now, people that want to feed their flesh, they're going to say things like, well, you know, God never said don't smoke marijuana. People are going to say, well, you know, yoga is just a bunch of stretching. Uh, listen, God did not, you should be close to 1 Peter 5. Go back to 1 Peter 5, verse 8. First two words. Be sober. 1 Peter 5, 8. Be sober. God did not go down the infinitely long list of bad influences that we could ever come under the influence of through the centuries, cultures, and years. He didn't go through this list. That's why in the Bible, you don't see a command that says, thou shalt not smoke pot. That's why you don't see a command that says, thou shalt not smoke peyote. That's why you don't see a, a, a verse that says, thou shalt not bow down to the golden image of Nebuchadnezzar. That's why there's nothing that says, thou shalt not bow down to the yoga image. That's why there's nothing that says, thou shalt not play with the Ouija board. Listen, he, God is not going to go through the infinitely long list of anything that we could come under the influence of that will cloud our thinking instead of going through all of these negative commands of don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. He simply gives you the positive command of verse eight. He says, be sober. And so the phrase be sober actually includes all the things that can rot your mind, that can negatively influence your heart, your life, and your body. And so listen to me. God did, in effect, say don't smoke pot by saying be sober. He did say don't mess with a Ouija board by saying be sober. He did say don't smoke peyote, which hopefully nobody in here is smoking peyote, by saying be sober. He went through, listen, he, he, he nicks the entire list of negative commands by simply saying be sober. That is what he is doing. Understand something, when God wrote the Bible, God had to write the Bible in a manner that transcended our American culture. Okay, understand this. God did not write the Bible for 21st century America. It's for us, but it's not only for us. God wrote the Bible also for 18th century Russia, 15th century Spain, 3rd century Rome, 1st century Israel. And so God wrote the Bible in a manner that is up and over. It transcends all cultures. It transcends all time. It transcends all language. It transcends all sin. And so God cannot possibly go through this laundry list of things that say, 
don't do this and don't do this and don't do this. And you can't do that. It's got to apply to you today as well as the American Indian on the Indian reservation. It's got to apply to you today in 21st century America as well as 15th century Spain. And so what God does is he uses the command of be sober and that fixes everything. That's why God did that. And so Peter's command to us to be sober is a positive command from God, not negative, where he wants us to be in our right thinking, our right mind. Peter commands us to be sober. To be sober means you're consistently reasonable. You're consistently clear-headed. To be sober means uh, your thinking is unclouded by the filth of this world. Sobriety uh, is to the mind what cleanliness is to the body. A couple of months ago, we had a worker here at our church, and he was here for a number of days, and I got to tell you, the guy smelled. He smelled bad. It was gross. You're talking to him, and the only thing you could think of is like, dude, take a shower, because this is gross. I didn't want to be close to him because of the dirtiness on him. And I wonder how many times God doesn't want to be close to us because of the dirtiness on us. Not dirtiness of mind. I'm sorry, not dirtiness of body, but dirtiness of mind, dirtiness of heart. God fixes all of that by saying, be sober. Be sober. Now, fortunately for you, I'm only going to get to the first two words of my message, which is be sober. And we'll close it out there. So I don't know where this thought finds you, but this much I know. Some, if, if, if all I got to was be sober, that means somebody here is struggling with their thinking. You're struggling with how much clarity you have in your mind. And understand something. Peter doesn't give us this command of be sober, be vigilant to beat us up. He gives us this command because he, in his mind, he's looking back two or three or four decades earlier. And he's telling you, he's saying, listen, I know what it's like to be sober and to slip. I know what it's like to deny my Lord because I, was stopped, I stopped being sober. And he's, he is commanding this to us, not out of to, to hit us over the head with a hammer. He's trying to encourage us. He's saying, be sober, be clear thinking. Stop messing with your mind in such a way with this filth of the world or the filth of your uh, uh, inward flesh or filth spiritually, whatever it might be. Be sober. Are you clear thinking tonight? If you are not in this book regularly, you are not clear thinking like you think you are. There are people all over here, all over here, and you think you're thinking correctly, just like David, Moses, and Achan was. They were not thinking clearly in the midst of their sin away from God. You cannot be, it is impossible to be spiritually sober away from God and not in this book. It is impossible. Brother Wally.